Welcome to Mental Health News Radio. I'm your host, Kristen Sunanta Walker. Just what are we going to discuss? The intimacy that is mental health. Let's continue to make it as comfortable as discussing brain health or heart health. This show has been on the air for several years and we have amazing co-hosts. And then we created a network of podcasters on mentalhealthnewsradionetwork.com, a place where every possible facet of mental well-being can be talked about openly. My show, after several hundred interviews, the format is this. Intimate, deep, funny, touching, sometimes uncomfortable, but always vulnerable conversations with interesting people. The goal is to have you, our listening family, many of you who have become my good friends, feel as though you are listening in on private conversations. Thank you for tuning in and becoming part of this amazing journey with me and now with our network of podcasters. Just knowing this podcast might be helping any of you realize you are not alone on this journey called being a human being makes doing this podcast worth every second. Hey everyone, this is Kristen Sinanta Walker, host of Mental Health News Radio, and I am here with Dr. Stephen Southwick. I'm really excited about this interview. Uh, One of my favorite words is resilience, and I know that we'll end up getting into that topic for sure. But first, I want to say, Stephen, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Absolutely. Now, tell our listeners a little bit about your background. I went to medical school. It took me a long time to do it, but I eventually went to medical school, trained in psychiatry. I, After my residency, I began working at the Veterans uh, Administration Hospital, running an inpatient psychiatric ward, and became very interested in post-traumatic stress disorder, then became a member of what's called the National Center for Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder, and our divi- it has several divisions. Our division is the Clinical Neuroscience Division, and I've been very fortunate to work with tremendous clinicians and researchers, and most importantly, unbelievable patients uh, who have given a tremendous amount to us. We hope we give as much back to them. So we've done a lot of neuroscience research, but we've done other psychosocial research as well. And then about 15 years ago, some of us became interested in resilience, which is not the opposite of post-traumatic stress disorder by any means. But we decided to try to understand how some people are able to bounce back or bend but not break under high levels of adversity and sometimes even to grow stronger. So this became a focus of ours and honestly, it's been a privilege interviewing, as I said, the patients with post-traumatic stress disorder, many of whom are very, very resilient, by the way, most of them. Pretty much everything we've learned, we've learned from people we've interviewed. And then we decided to look at the psychosocial literature, uh, scientific literature, and also the neuroscience literature to see what those literatures had to say about what these individuals were telling us. And we, after many interviews, we sort of broke it down to what we thought were about 10 different factors associated with resilience. There could be more, but these are the themes that we kept hearing over and over again. And then we found quite a bit of psychosocial and neuroscience literature to support these particular factors as uh, helping to negotiate adversity. Mm-hmm. So that's that's where I that's where and I've been very lucky teaching students so forth and uh, I've been at the VA for many years. It's, it's great. 
So I'm going to read a quote in a, in a minute, but first I want to ask you, we have so many um, people that are thinking about or are in some stage of their career, either a student and deciding where they want to go in behavioral health or they're already in behavioral health or maybe they're changing midstream. So they always want to know when I have someone come on who's in the field, why did you choose this as your career? Wow. Um, you know, I've always been interested. I was very, very interested in literature in college. I was interested in psychology. I was also interested in medicine. It took me a while to, I dropped out of college, was in the army for a couple of years and was floundering around. But eventually I went to medical school. I liked many of the specialties in medicine, but I felt myself pulled toward psychiatry. I just think it's been, it's a best, it was the best fit for me in medicine. I was very interested in emotions and very interested in neurology and the brain and also extremely interested in people's stories. So I think I've, I think I was always inclined in this direction. It's turned out to be a very good fit for me. That makes sense. There's always a personal story behind, you know, why someone would choose this as their profession. So I think that that's what helps a lot of people listening feel validated into why they went into this career field. <laughs> and, and one other thing that I've just become aware of, I don't know, in the last number of years, I was in the Army from 1968 to 1970 during the Vietnam War, and by luck of the draw, I went to Germany. Uh, I volunteered to be a medic, but I became, they made me a military police, which turned out to be fine. But having worked uh, here in the VA and even during my residency, rotating at the VA, I feel convinced that I would have PTSD had I been fighting in the jungles of Vietnam. Mm. So I think one of the reasons, and I, w- I wasn't really aware of this, but I'm... I, I think it certainly had a played a factor role is my respect and my empathy, I think, for uh, soldiers like me who are placed in harm's way and in really pretty profound ways. So I think that may be partially related in terms of why I, not so much why I chose psychiatry, but why I stayed both at Yale and the VA, but focused on PTSD. So in terms of um, turning that into being an author, um, how was that journey for you and how was the writing process for you? Because everyone has their own journey when it comes to the trial and tribulations and a wonderful uh, resilience that comes out of surviving having written a book. Well, I must say it was a remarkable challenge, much bigger than I had anticipated. I've written lots of articles and chapters and so forth, but never a book. And uh, my colleague Dennis Charney and I uh, decided to write this book, and it was a lot bigger than I had imagined. It was really fun, but also really painful. Mm. And I spent many weekends doing it. But the part that I really loved was doing the interviews with these remarkable individuals, many of whom have become role models for me because I got to know them pretty well. I think that's what kept pushing us ahead is uh, knowing that that these individuals had an important message. And uh, I think what we attempted to do is write it in a way that we could step back and let the people we interviewed actually do the teaching. So there are lots of stories in the book about, you know, remarkable uh, capacity that we all probably have, or most, pretty much all of us have far more, are far more resilient than, than we know. It's really great to have role models and to see people and hear about how they actually negotiated these stressors and then to learn from them. In answer to your question, it was sort of a love-hate thing. I loved part of it, and part of it was very painful. Right, exactly, because you were delving into your own trauma, things that you had been through to write it, and that's always that's always an interesting journey, I would say. <laughs> it certainly takes resiliency to get through that. 
Yeah, I, I don't I don't see myself as being particularly resilient. I do feel that I've learned a tremendous amount from these individuals and from mm. just studying the literature so much and so in depth. So in terms of, um, you know, what you've learned with other people, obviously you're very humble, which is a wonderful quality. Um, what do you feel like are some of the things that you've taken from some of these people's journeys that have uh, bravely shared them, you know, what they went through with you? Maybe the first thing that we learned is that resilience is largely a set of skills and habits. So people aren't born resilient. Well, and I take that back. Actually, all of us, probably through evolution or however it happened, are pretty darn resilient. And uh, there's a wonderful researcher. Her name is Ann Mastin at University of Minnesota. And she wrote a book called Ordinary Magic. And I believe what she was referring to is that all of us, children to adults, have an inner reservoir of resilience that we often don't recognize or we're not aware of, but that in difficult times, sometimes we are surprised to find the resources that we actually have. And so part of what we learned is that one, we all have this reservoir. We often were not aware of it, but we can pull upon it when we need it. The other is that anyone pretty much anybody can learn to become more resilient by, it's really in many ways a series of habits, a way of uh, negotiating the world. And what we learned from these individuals is really some of the characteristics that they had and how they developed these characteristics. One, for example, would be optimism. Now, that's a tricky one because there's a genetic component to optimism. Uh, and they, you know, we all know people who are just bubbly optimistic. They're just unbelievably optimistic, almost no matter what. The vast majority of us aren't really that way. But we can learn to be more optimistic. And optimism really is seeing light at the end of the tunnel, feeling that, that things will get better. And for example, one way that people can learn to be more optimistic is by taking a close look at how they explain things to themselves. So for example, a pessimist, uh, let's suppose they flunked a test in algebra in high school. The pessimist might say, oh my gosh, I flunked this test. I'm really stupid in math. Matter of fact, I'm terrible in all subjects. I'm never going to get into college. I'm going to be a failure. Right. So this becomes a habit. And what that individual has done is they've catastrophized and they've generalized. So they've made it much bigger and they've extended it to all areas of their life. Now, the optimist may flunk the same test, but think to themselves, oh, this is not good, but, you know, maybe I didn't study enough. Maybe this isn't my strength. I'll be okay and everything else. And, it, you know, it'll just affect me in a relatively small way. So the optimist has not catastrophized and is not generalized. And it turns out that this is largely an habitual way of explaining events to ourselves that can be changed. It's not easy. Therapy called learned optimism. And it's a lot of it is about recognizing, paying attention to how you're explaining things to yourself, asking, is this, am I really never going to get a job? Am I really never going to get into college? And, and looking at how we tend to distort things one way or another. Um, there are ways, for example, to become more optimistic and other ways to hang out with optimistic people. It tends to spread. And there's really good research on that. It's infectious to hang out with optimistic people. But I can tell you when you're, and you, I mean, I don't need to tell you this. You obviously know this, but being struggling with depression, uh, you know, sometimes the light of optimism from other people is way too bright to handle being around when you are in the depths of your depression. I agree with that. And I think this is one of the important things that I hope we conveyed, probably not well enough, that when we talk about resilience, people get the idea, okay, you see, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Well, there are times in life and there are conditions and there are 
settings where that is nearly impossible to do. And depression is a very good example because when an individual is in a major depression, it affects everything. It affects your energy. It affects the way you see things. It, it affects your, everything. And it, it's almost like this blanket, this yes. terrible blanket that's covering you. And it may be impossible to do some of the things we talk about in the book. There are a few things that, that could still help dramatically, and that would be uh, your social support system. But you're right. Sometimes if people are shining that optimism light too brightly, it's just discouraging to you if you're right. depressed. And, uh, but you, you, you do whatever you can. Try to be active, as active as you can, and so forth. But you're absolutely right. There are situations, and, and certainly psychosocial situations as well. For example, if someone has a house that is that is destroyed by a hurricane and then they have nowhere to live and someone has a ha- house destroyed by a hurricane but they happen to have a second house well it's far easier for the second person to be quote resilient so the resources that you have available to you are critical a critical part of resilience Absolutely. And I think um, one of the things that you learn, you know, if you've had early childhood trauma and you grew up around a lot of mental illness and obviously, you know, abusive behavior that can come from uh, being in that kind of an environment, not always, because I don't want anyone to think I'm saying mentally ill people are abusive. That's not what I'm saying at all. I have struggled with mental illness my entire life and I did have early childhood trauma, but the people that I was around constantly were exceedingly negative negative, extremely toxic people. And as I've grown older, the thing that has enabled me to be who I really am, which is a lemonade person, like you can give me the ugliest, most sour lemon you ever had in your life and I'm going to make lemonade out of it. But that is a new experience for me. And the thing that has got me there obviously is all this wonderful therapy, but removing toxic people from my life. And surrounding myself with people that are survivors themselves, that have the same challenges, that are very optimistic, people that I didn't believe that I deserved to be around years ago. Does that make sense? Absolutely. It makes makes great sense. There is some really great research on the importance of being around at least pop people who are positive or there have been these big sociologic studies showing that if you have a optimistic, positive friend, you're nine something like nine percent more likely to be optimistic yourself, and it's, it's, it's so forth. It, it, negativity as well. So it, it is infectious. It absolutely is. And you're right. Childhood traumas are very, very toxic, particularly child abuse and so forth, uh, neglect. That that those are big hurdles to overcome. But for many people, it is possible with the right opportunities. I think exactly. Uh, access to good treatment, uh, so many factors. Um, and really what I see from what you talk about with resilience is just having that resilience, getting to that place where you realize, wait a minute, I have survived so much. Clearly I am a warrior and you realize as life hits you, because I don't care if you've lived in a, you know, castle your entire life and never had a problem, which that doesn't exist. But, you know, let's say, use that as an example. Life's going to hit you at some point and people that have been through so much and survived it, um, you do realize, good God, I can survive anything. That's right. And in fact, this is tricky, but in terms of what sort of a childhood would predispose to resilience, it's not a cushy childhood. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, it just isn't. So we think of, you know, someone who's had everything and kind of been pampered and how lucky they are. Uh, not 
Not in all ways. Um, there, there was a great pediatrician a while ago, George Winnicott, who had a, a term that he coined a good enough mother. Hmm. And it could, have, it could have been good enough father, good enough coach, good enough whatever. But I believe what he meant by good enough mother is that the good enough mother in many ways is the best mother. So a good enough mother knows what's happening with her children. And as I said, this applies to fathers as well. Knows what's happening to their children, knows if their children are really in any you know, significant danger, but gives their child enough space, enough room to grow, to fail, uh, so that they can essentially uh, master of various stressors in their life. Every parent needs to hear that you just said that. Yeah. The sheltering well, of children is really, it it's, can cause so much. You think you're doing a good thing and you're really not. In many, in many ways, you're really not. I'm not saying it's okay to, you know, let predators walk into their life and do damage, but that the constant, oh, we never want our children to cry or feel bad is just not, <laughs> that's not setting them up for um, healthy boundaries and dynamics later in life. It's well intended. That's, that's the tricky part. Right. So the parents are trying to do, myself as a parent, I, it was so hard to let my daughter fail. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I, <laughs> I tried my best. So the, the two extremes, the neglect, real, true neglect, and then helicopter parenting, <laughs> where, you, where you swoop down every time there's the slightest, you know, little sniffle or whatever, or they, they're not really preparing a child for, to negotiate the world in an optimal way as an adult. It's just, I mean, as you said, we're all faced with stresses and traumas, and it's just going to happen. And you want to be prepared. I know, I know, no one likes commercials, but seriously, folks, without the help from these organizations, we could not stay on the air. Please give a shout out to zencharts.com. If you're a mental health or addiction treatment center, you'll want to use their EHR. It's gorgeous, and they're just good people. And also mygenetics, M-Y-G-E-N-E-T-X.com, because knowing your genetic code empowers your mental health treatment. And lastly, copenotes.com. We love getting positive messages right to our phones every day from Johnny Crowder. He's the lead singer of Prison, a heavy metal band sharing their music about suicide prevention, addiction recovery, and mental health. See, that was painless. Support them as they support us. Back to the show. I've often wondered, I mean, both my ex-husband and I had very, very, very traumatic childhoods. And we we really protected our son from the people in our family. And although I was... Uh, I was very much a consequence, you know, actions have consequences. I fired my own son from uh, my own company uh, because he was not doing a good job. I mean, I, I clearly, you know, did some of those things that helicopter parents would never do. But um, I've wondered now um, how maybe we should have let him be around more of the family because he's so aghast at times at behavior just isolates himself from it and it stresses him out so much. And these are things that his dad and I just kind of shrugged off and went through life because we had experienced so much abuse. So I've thought, oh, we, I don't think we did him a great service by keeping him so isolated from some of these people in our family that we had been around. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, it's, it's 
honestly, it's an incredibly difficult balance. Yeah. Even the, quote, best of parenting, whatever that is, you know, you don't necessarily, there, there are so many factors involved in, in how an individual ends up negotiating life. But I, I do feel confident that the extremes of uh, neglect or overprotection make life maybe a little more challenging for the kid uh, right. as they get older. But again, it takes, you know, it really, to be a good coach, to be a good mentor, parent and so forth, it's tough because each kid is different also. Yeah, that's right. So as a coach, you know, you want to, you can't really, you really can't treat each kid the same. I mean, you, you sort of have to, but I think if you want to, if you want them to really shine, I, you know, there are significant individual differences and each kid responds in a different way. Right, exactly. I want to read this quote from the book um, that you wrote with Dr. Dennis Charney, and I hope I said his last name correctly. That's correct. Okay, good. <laughs> Resilience, the science behind mastering life's greatest challenges. And this is from Irving Magic Johnson. First of all, I, I want to read the quote because he says the word awesome. And I'm from Southern California originally. So I grew up saying that everything is just awesome. So uh, that's <laughs> another reason why I'm reading it. But he says, this okay. book is awesome. Nobody can predict the future. And we all know that tragedy can strike at any time. This book teaches you how to become stronger, how to bend but not break, and how to make the best out of a bad situation. This book teaches you that you're a lot stronger than you think, that you are resilient. Ugh, what an awesome quote. <laughs> well, I, I hope that's true. Um, <laughs> we, it, you know, we, as I said, we we really had the people we interviewed uh, be the teachers. So I know I've learned a lot from them. As a matter of fact, you know, one of the things that we, I think we mentioned was uh, having role models. Right. So it turned out that, of course, like anything else, having a role model is really important. One of the ways that I've benefited most from this whole experience of learning about resilience is having my own role models from some of the individuals I've interviewed. One young girl, one woman, uh, she, when we interviewed her, she was a high school student. She was born with spina bifida, which is a neurologic disorder that made it very difficult for her to walk. She had to have crutches and so forth. She was one of the most optimistic people I've ever met. She uh, swam on her swim team, uh, ended up being a para-Olympian, para winning gold medals and all sorts of things. In high school, she averaged practice. They swam 26 miles a week. <laughs> 26. Now, if you're a swimmer, <laughs> one mile is 72 laps in a you know, Olympic pool. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of miles for a that's, week. That's a lot of miles. And she would get up at five in the morning with the mm. team, 26 miles a week. She was valedictorian of her class. She ended up going to Yale. She was on the Yale varsity swim. She ended up graduating from Yale summa cum laude. I mean, it goes on and on. She just, and she, she had a real disability. So in terms of a role model, she's one of my role models. So for example, I might be, I like to exercise and I like swimming, and I might swim oh, about a half mile, and then I'm as I'm swimming, I think, well, you know, maybe I think that's probably that's probably good enough. But then Deborah comes, and I go, "Are you kidding? Get going!" You know, twenty six miles a week, a high school student. Come on. So, um, yeah, and so I have lots of uh, lots of people like that. So, so in terms of role models, I think that if someone wants to become resilient. One of the good things to do is, is think about your own life. Who do you know who really uh, handles stress well and study them? And you can even ask them. And uh, there are ways to learn uh, through what's called observational learning. Albert Bandura was the 
very famous psychologist who wrote a lot about this. One of the best ways is to, I'll give you an example from golf. If I wanted to improve my golf swing, let's say putting, let's say, I would find, you know, a pro and I would watch that person putt. Right. But if I, if I tried to imitate the whole stroke, kind of a gestalt, and not break it into segments, I probably would not succeed. If, on the other hand, I break it into segments, for example, I notice that the pro golfer never takes his or her eye off the ball. Right. Always. So now, now I have a rule. So one of my, one of my rules is don't take my eye off the ball and so forth. And you build the rules. And, and similarly with resilience, you might notice that your resilient friend always reaches out for support from friends and colleagues when they're having a tough time. They always do that. Or they continue to exercise even though it's, a, it's hard to do it. Or, you know, whatever they do. And you can turn that into a role, especially if you notice that two or more resilient people are doing the same thing. Oh, absolutely. And to watch people, you know, there are people that you find um, when you're someone that's had a lot of trauma that really, my God, they are cheerleading for you. They want you to, the friends that I have that have called me over the years that, you know, we've had this long history together. We've seen each other at our worst and at our best and, and so on that just, you know, call and check in out of the blue and that I check in with out of the blue that are like, you know, what's going on now? And they're in your corner. And if you're going through a rough time, you know, they're asking, Hey, what's happening? What's going on? They want you to succeed because I've learned you're a role model for them because they don't, they love you so much. And they're so inspired by you and what you've overcome that when you're down for the count, they're just like, ah, I want to, I want to hear the other side of that story. I'm going to be here for you, you know, through that other side of the story. And then when you get there, they're clapping the loudest for you. And that is a, that is a true friend. And I think a lot of people that have had, you know, a lot of traumatic experiences and uh, that didn't grow up knowing what real friendship is, when you finally get it, maybe it's even later in life, man, talk about valuing those relationships. Those are, those are gold. Glad you mentioned that because I personally think that one of the most, if not the most important uh, factor associated with resilience is your your social network. Who, who's in your network? Who is there someone who will really come to help you no matter what? Is there someone that you will help no, no matter, matter what? what? Because yeah. because it's a two way street. You know, you you have to give in order to receive in in, in general. But the social connectedness piece really I, I didn't appreciate it until after doing these studies, hmm. uh, because when people are socially isolated, that has a very negative effect on your physical health and your mental health. And in, in fact, I just saw a study the other day that loneliness or isolation has as big an effect on how long you live as cigarette smoking, uh, hypertension, obesity, that sort of thing. Right. And on the other hand, being with other people and having that sort of support is very good from a physical standpoint. It's very good from a psychological standpoint. Uh, it's very good with regard to resilience. The, one of the reasons is that when you have people who you really trust, uh, you tend to become more of an active coper. In other words, you're willing to take some risks because you know somebody has your back. Yes. Avoidance avoidance is not good. Avoidance, we, it's natural. We all want to avoid things that are uncomfortable. Yeah. It just doesn't, it just doesn't work. And, and one, one really interesting thing that I've been reading about recently and learning about is the brain has evolved in a way 
to make sure that we stay socially connected mm. because belonging is not just a nice thing. It's an absolute need. And if we think about our distant ancestors, if you were separated from the group, you wouldn't survive. Right. So it turns out that the brain processes social pain, which is possibility of rejection or, uh, you know, just, you know, any, any small slight or whatever, brain processes social pain in some of the same areas as the brain processes physical pain. So that social pain is really painful. In fact, in many ways, social pain can be more painful than physical pain, at least in hindsight. Social pains tend to last in a very potent way in your memory even more than physical pains. And that may be that the brain wanted to make sure that you did not get separated from the group and made it very painful for any form of rejection. On the other hand, when we cooperate or when we feel understood by someone else or when we give to somebody else, the brain lights up the reward centers, a place called the ventral striatum, and releases dopamine, which is a chemical that you know, it makes us feel energetic and good. And, and so the, so the brain is wired for us to be together and to cooperate and to, and to, uh, you know, have friendships and that sort of thing. So this is really one of the most important factors. And I, I did not appreciate this before. Whenever I meet with someone who's come for some assistance, one of the first things I do now is we draw a map of their social network. If, if they don't feel it strong and so forth, then that's one of the, that's one of the key elements in therapy is to enhance that network, however that individual can do it. It's really critical. It is so critical. Oh my gosh, absolutely. And to learn, I mean, you know, hang on to those people that are optimists, that um, do have good friendships, that are um, connectors, because they will teach you how to do that for yourself. I mean, I was an only child. I was always alone. And um, I really, a lot of stuff happened that my listeners have already heard, but um, it was really difficult for me to have healthy attachments with people. I had no role modeling for healthy attachments or the ones that I did were completely um, cut off by my parents and, you know, uh, other family members that were not well, obviously, that they would do that. But it was so good for me to just searching, searching, searching. I think that's part of resilience too, is that, man, I don't care how many times you try to knock someone down, they are going to get up and just keep seeking, 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 seeking their highest good, seeking those because it does find you, you do find it, but you've got to have that resilience that just keep trying. Yeah, that's right. You won't give up. I think you were mentioned, I think you may have mentioned support groups. In any case, support groups can be really helpful. When we talk about social support, it's it's a complex construct. I could give someone emotional support. I could give them what's called instrumental support, which is resources or money or if they didn't have it. I could give them informational support, you know, advice and so forth. But it turns out one of my close colleagues did a study with returning Iraq, Afghanistan veterans. And social support is one of the strongest buffers uh, in terms of preventing PTSD. So if you're highly socially connected, you're less likely to develop PTSD with the same amount of trauma. But what he found was that the elements of social support that were most important for helping to decrease the chances of getting PTSD was feeling understood. One of the reasons that veterans, I think, like to be with other veterans is that they understand. Right. And 
I think this is one of the powers of support groups, whether it be, you know, for a medical illness or psychological or substance or whatever, that you just feel understood, which is very, very healthy. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's, um, I think you are making me realize I need to do more, uh, I need to do more phone calls as the founder of this mental health podcast network that we do. Cause whenever we do, I'm really busy trying to build this network and, uh, and podcasters are constantly, um, reaching out, you know, can we have a private talk? Can we do this? And that's my job, but they also love it when we all get together and we all talk together. And I forget about doing that because I'm busy trying to build the network and you are making me realize, right, we have these awesome advocates running around, you know, they're do-gooders out there, you know, trying to help as many people as possible and they need support too. I need to have more of those group sessions (laughs) so that we can all connect and talk about that, you know? Yeah. And, and, And groups are good for almost everything. For example, if you wanted to get in better physical shape, which actually does enhance emotional resilience and physical resilience. It's a long story, but it's very interesting. We know that one of the best ways to do that is to meet somebody, a good friend at the gym, or be in a group, or for pretty much anything. If you want to learn to meditate, uh, mindfulness. One of my favorite Buddhist teachers, Thich Nhat Hanh, talks about the need to be in a sangha or a group of like-minded people so that you continue because the Apparently, if you learn meditation and so forth, the average person will continue for about three months, and then it'll tail off unless right. you're doing it with somebody else. So when we talk about exercise, we say, well, you know, exercise with friends because that's social connecting. You're sort of pulling on a number of different resilience factors at the same time. That's true, and that doesn't mean. I mean, I'm you know, there's so many people that listen that are um, have social anxiety and and so on that listen to our show, and I understand that. I'm not a go to an aerobics class and do aerobics with a bunch of strangers kind of a person. That's not not that there's anything wrong with that, but that's not going to do it for me. That's going to actually cause more anxiety, but I will go do a group activity with my close friends that involves exercise and have a wonderful experience and forget that I'm even exercising because of the emotional connectivity that's happening right alongside the physical exertion. Right. And I I think you make an excellent point. And that is that no one size fits all. Or if you're not so strong in one area, well, you're probably a lot stronger in another area, you know, And, and even little, little steps make a difference. So yeah, I agree. I'm not a, a a big group exerciser like that either. I tend to meet one friend. It also forces me to show up because I, I really care about this guy a lot. I don't want right. to you know, Exactly. You know. Same here. It's not about, I don't care if I don't show up for myself, which I'm working on, but I'm like, oh, I don't want to disappoint my friend. Yeah, that's really. Got to do what works, you know. I mean, you have to yeah. do what works. Well, oh, this is this has been a wonderful talk. Please tell our listeners um, where they can find out more about you and re- um, reiterate the name of the book and where they can find the book. Also, okay, I think the, I think the book is actually a summary of everything. I'll speak for myself. Everything I, I know in the entire world is in the book. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and um, I, I think it's I think it is helpful because of the people we interviewed. And as you said, it's resilience, the science of mastering life's greatest challenges. It's Cambridge University Press and Amazon is a good place to get it. If for those of, of uh, listeners who uh, might be struggling with post-traumatic stress disorder, the National Center for Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder has a phenomenal website that all sorts of educational 
tools and, and articles, and it's it's a remarkable organization. They had podcasts on resilience and other things, and it's just a very rich resource. Fantastic. Uh, yeah, those are the two I would think of off the top of my head. Well, I don't know how you found out about, out about us, um, probably through your PR person, Holly, but I'm grateful to her um, for um, getting to do this interview and um, having you share your wisdom with our listeners. Well, thank you. I, I really enjoyed it. And uh, as I said, my wisdom is really the wisdom of other people, learning from them and trying to imitate them, literally. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Imitation, yeah. best form of flattery most of the time. <laughs> yep, yep. There you go. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And I want to say thank you to our listeners for another edition of Mental Health News Radio. good intentions i heat up and act on my emotions thanks so much for listening to mental health news radio our podcast can be found on itunes stitcher and hundreds of other podcast apps or you can visit our website at mentalhealthnewsradio.com if you have a question or would like to be a guest become a podcaster on our network or join the amazing organizations that help keep us on the air please email us at info at mhnrnetwork.com Get ready for that special goodbye from our resident therapy dog, Miles, and a special thanks to Emily Sohn for letting us use her incredible song, Cordial, for our podcast music. Listen to the full song on SoundCloud at emily.sonne. Don't be surprised when I don't hate on you. After all we promised, we'd be cordial.